0: Good morning, I wish I could say it's good to see you, I can imagine you, and I'm glad you joined us this morning, and if you're a part of the Grace family, welcome, and if you're not, you're visiting with us, a very special welcome to you. We're in a series from Paul's letter to the Philippians, it's called As Citizens, taken from chapter 1, verse 27 where Paul says, as citizens, conduct yourselves worthy, worthy of the gospel. And again in chapter 3, verse 20, as citizens of heaven. So today, we continue, this is our sixth, I guess I could call them episodes, our sixth chapter in Paul's letter to the Philippians. We're in chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. Take your Bible or your tablet or your phone, and if you have the word open, I'm going to read. This is from the English Standard Version. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation." among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud or I may boast that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I've had a lot of bosses. Bosses tell me what to do. I do it. If I don't, I get fired. That's just uh, the way it is my way or the highway. I'm not bitter. As I said, it's just the way it is. But I had one boss of all the bosses who was different. He helped me. He got down into whatever I was doing with me. He worked beside me. His name was Harry Anderson, and he had a huge influence and impact on my life. It's not likely that we think of God as a boss, but what Paul is telling us here is that God is in it with us. He's down in it with us, beside us, and he's a big influence on what we do. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling For God is in it with us. He is at work in us. And that is a huge message to us. I hope that this week we will ponder daily the idea that God is not a long way away, He's not far off, He's not disinterested, He's not preoccupied. He's in this life with us, and He's in it to achieve what He calls on us to do as citizens and as His own children. He's not in His office on the 14th floor. He's with us to prompt and to empower us. Wherever you are this morning, wherever you are as you are watching and listening to me, God has things for you to do right where you are, and he's right there with you to get it done. The theme of this morning's message is, as citizens... The Lord is with you and at work in you. The Lord is at work in you. And I just want to quickly review the three things that I see Paul wants to lay on our hearts that we should take with us and understand more clearly about this fundamental idea that God is at work in us first thing is, in verse 12 and 13, to claim the strength of our Master. The second thing is to show the life of our message. And the third thing is to pick the joy, that is to choose the joy of what truly matters. So let's look at verse 12, 13, claim the strength of our Master. Paul began in earnest what he wanted to communicate, drive home, if you will, to the Philippians in writing this letter. He has a very intimate relationship with him, with them. And just like us, we aren't able to see each other personally. He's in prison, and they're at a great distance from him. They don't even have the advantage of instant messaging or texting or phone calling. But he does deliver this letter by Epaphroditus. And in it, he conveys a great deal of affection and love. He knows these people well, and he misses them. But he really doesn't know, and in fact, I think Paul has a hunch that he may never leave prison He never may get that second or a further visit to be with them. And they, in a sense, are his children. They will carry on the family name, as it were. They will carry on the work that he has begun with them, the work of God in their lives. In verse 27, he does draw upon their privileged citizenship as citizens of philippi a colony of rome it's a great source of pride for the philippians and he says their real citizenship is in heaven and but on that citizenship he says yeah, live worthy be citizens worthy of the gospel and he goes on to call upon them to have the mind of Christ, to be unified in the one servant of Christ. And he has just finished speaking to them in this letter about the fact that the mind of Christ is manifest in Jesus' humility that he demonstrated in life, even in death, death on a cross, The first command, as it were, the the first order that he gives them, the first urging following what he has said in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, are these words here in verse 12, when he says, as you've always obeyed, now even more in my absence, work out your salvation. Work it out in fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work within you. He wants them to live it out. It's not work for your salvation. It's work out your salvation. Turn it loose. Live it out. Be real about your faith your trust in God, your dependence upon Him, His presence in your life, His willing, desiring Spirit at work in your life. This has nothing to do with working for salvation, as though we've somehow fallen short and have to pick up our feet and run harder and try harder. Not at all. In fact, he opened his letter in the first, what we call the first chapter of his letter, the sixth verse where he said, God, I am sure of this very thing has begun a good work in you, and he's going to bring it to completion. Or think of what he wrote to the churches in this vicinity of Philippi and elsewhere when he wrote to the Ephesians. He says, our salvation is by grace. It's a gift of God you can't earn. But he then goes on to say in verse 10 of Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10, he says, we are his workmanship. He's begun a good work in us, he writes to the Philippians. He writes to other churches. We are his workmanship, created for good works in Christ Jesus. And so it's not just uh, that we're one and done. Hey, I've got our my salvation st- you know, tucked away. God wants us to live this new life. We are a new humanity in Christ. We are crucified with Christ and raised to newness of life. And this is a theme of Paul's writings, and it becomes more real to him than ever at the thought that he may never get out of prison, that he may have to pour his life out as a as an offering for the faith of others. And that's something that he picks up in these thoughts that we just read. But this, uh, he says, work it out with fear and trembling for God himself is at work. This is is like a sobering uh, snap to attention when someone says, the boss just came in. There's an awareness that the Lord is, in our, is present with us. Uh, so often we forget about him or we're not mindful of him. We're preoccupied with the things of this world and we forget who we are in Christ. He's called the Philippians citizens. We're called citizens of heaven. But now he turns his attention and he says, as children in these verses. We're not only citizens of heaven, we are children of the King, children of the Lord. Like, um, there have been times when uh, I was working and Harry, I mentioned Harry Anderson, my boss, when he showed up, and he'd get down right in the work with me and my attitude was like, what are you doing? This is amazing. I've never had a boss do this. And that is really sometimes how we need to be aware of the Lord, that he's not far away. He's down here with us in the midst of our difficulties, our hardships, our sorrows, even our happiest of times. And we need to, as it were, consecrate our lives in the sense that God is available and accessible to empower us, to lift us, to encourage us, to strengthen us for the things of our everyday life, that we might avail of his power and prevail as his children. God is at work in us both, Paul writes. It's often translated to will And to work. I love to mountaineer. I didn't get to do any climbing or get off and trek in the high country at all the last year. I hope to this coming year. But I have to admit to you, um, youthful as I look, when I think of going high and high altitude climbing, I have the will, I have the desire. That's exactly the idea that Paul's talking about here when he says both to will or it can be translated to to the desire. I have that will, I have that desire. But I'm not always sure that I have the power to achieve the way I used to, the way I once could. You know, I can remember what that's like. Nothing could stop me, but now it's harder, and I'm not sure I can go as high or as long or without a travail, so to speak, that I haven't experienced before. What Paul is saying to us is God is in it with us. God is at work in us, both to will. He creates that desire. He prompts that desire to do the things, the Christ-like things of God. But he also gives us the energy, the power to accomplish, to achieve, to complete those things. And it is through faith. So often, we stop. We don't even try. We will not go forward because sometimes God calls us to step outside of our comfort zone to take risks of faith for him, to go places we wouldn't normally go, but he says, you can go in my strength. I will see you to the finish. All those things are in view when Paul says, with fear and trembling, work out your salvation. For God is at work in you, both to will and to accomplish, to achieve, to see it through. That's what he wants from us as we walk with him. And he will take us places we haven't imagined. He doesn't expect us to just live in one trailer park or in one lot or one area in our lives. He expects us to grow. He expects us to new, do new things, to achieve new things, that's a part of growing in faith. God is at work in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He does say to us, though, that we are to do these things uh, with without grumbling or complaining, without grumbling or disputing. And that's a very real area of our lives that is an area in which sometimes we have the will, but we run into very human things that cause us to stumble, that we find difficult, or things that make us unhappy, and then... As a result, we kind of give up on our faith and we uh, rely or return to our old, very uh, human ways. It wasn't uh, but a couple of weeks ago that Shelley and I celebrated our 46th wedding anniversary. I wanted to just admit to you that in those 46 years, and they've gotten better and better and better and better. But we've had a lot of rough times. And in the beginning, we had a lot of fights, both firstborns, both strong-willed, both of strong opinion. I can remember some grumbling and disputing. And I remember that that often led to entrenched opposition, especially on my part. And I'm not going to... uh, you know, in my mind, uh, given too easily. Often I thought, you know what? I'm innocent. She's guilty. It's her place to fix this. And I'd kind of be entrenched, sitting on my throne. And God is prompting me. I don't know if you've experienced something like this, but you know what's right. You know what is a godly thing to do. But in our pride, we just, nope, nope, I'm not going to do that. And we find all kinds of supporting justifications, and we find fault, or we rehearse faults to kind of justify not doing anything, not moving with God, even though God's prompting. He gives us a vision of his good pleasure. Sometimes, uh, in the struggles of marriage, and I'm using this as a as a personal example, not because I think your marriages are in difficulty, but you may be in a struggle in your relationship, and you're immovable and entrenched and standing on all your principles and justifications, but you know God has better things in mind. He has a better vision. He has his good pleasure, which is his goodwill for your relationship and the beauty of your marriage and the benefit of both of you. For my marriage, God would fill my mind and heart with those things. But I would uh, stubbornly, my attitude was, well, start that with Shelley." And I would resist the mind of Christ, which in the, just the previous verses of the last chapter, he set aside everything. He got off his throne. He descended, as it were. He got very low, as low as anyone could ever get in order to reach us, in order to achieve and accomplish God's good pleasure, his pleasing will. Even as when He created, He said, this is good. God has good things that He wants to accomplish in our lives, but our lives are not in isolation. They always involve other people, and that means getting off our throne and seeking His good pleasure, His good will for that relationship. And often, we're the first responder. We're the one in whom God is prompting because We're the one in in whom he's at work. We don't have to worry about others. He's probably prompting them, but we don't wait for them. We move with God. And so, yes, we're going to run up against God and his will for our marriages, our relationships at work or in school or at home right now, as people are sometimes, you know, being in the same place with the same people at long times... uh, can be difficult, but when we take those first steps, and that's why Shelly and I uh, are so in love to this day, we have grown in our faith, we've grown to trust God, we have greater confidence in our relationship even when things are a little uh, kilter because we've been through these things, we know God is at work and we move more quickly. In fact, we outdo each other in taking those first steps to mend and repair, to ask forgiveness, to love. You can do that too in whatever relationship, whatever your fight is. And it may take endurance. We're not just one and done. I tried it and it didn't work. That doesn't work for us because God's in it for the long haul. Sometimes the turnaround, we do the right thing, but we don't get the immediate response that we want. Everything's not hunky-dory or roses and flowers immediately. But we must endure and continue to do the good things of God, even in the midst of disappointment or a lack of positive response. But here's what you can count on. This you can take to the bank. When you endure and walk with God, continuing to allow him to prompt and empower you to do the Christ-like things in your relationship or situation, whatever it is, you will know God's peace You will know the wholeness of soul that comes from walking and believing in the Lord. And you'll know the strength of conscience that you're doing the right things regardless of the results. But the results will come. God will be working in ways you won't always see. But you know it. Even as Paul tells us here, even in my absence, Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for God is at work in you, both to will and to accomplish, to work and to succeed and bring about his good pleasure. This is such important stuff. I just had to stress it in the only way I can... I know how, and that's to talk about the things that God has taught me in my own relationships. Even though we've stumbled, we get back up and we keep going, and God keeps impressing and growing through uh, through that in us. Can you picture God's goodwill in your broken situation? Can you begin to visualize what God would want to accomplish? Mended relationships. Restored relationships, relationships that have become sour, that are sweetened again. Are you avoiding someone that forgiveness, God's love, but because of pride or embarrassment, or you don't want to admit to what you did wrong, but you work out your salvation? Yeah, otherwise you're closing it off, you're drying it up. You're shutting a door in your house and never going in that room again. That's not the expansive salvation and work of God in our lives. Some of us are holed up in a kitchen of our household because of all the closed relationships that we've receded and retreated from because we're not willing to work out our salvation to walk into relationships in God's power to accomplish his will and things that he wants to do in our lives. Trust him. You'll be happy. You'll be glad you did. You'll grow in your faith. You'll believe in God in ways that you often don't now. You think he's impotent, but so often he wants to empower us and we lack faith and trust to believe that he's right down here in us and with us in these things. So, yes, remember, claim the strength of our master and show the life of our message. In verses 14, 15, and the first part of 16, he talks about holding fast. And the word is an interesting Greek word because it means to hold it tight or fast or firm. You're not going to let it go. But it also can mean to hold forth, like holding forth a cup of something refreshing for another to take. I can't promise or prove that Paul had both in mind, but it could be read either way, and both fit very well. We've got to hold it fast and not let it go, not give up and not quit the gospel. That's our message. That's our new life in Christ but we're also holding it forth as we hold it fast. And Paul says, without grumbling or disputing. Shelley and I were married many years before we were first able to ever go to Hawaii, and I I really fell in love with that, and we've been several times now. Here's a beach that we often visit. We'd visit all the beaches on the west side of Maui and snorkel. We went to Black Rock Beach. We got up early so we could get a good spot on the beach. It gets pretty crowded there. It's not one of our usual places, but we got there early, about 9 a.m., and the beach was virtually empty. So we laid out our blankets, set up our umbrella, unfolded our chairs, got our books out, and began reading when a family of five came. I mean, you could look to the left, and there were 150 yards of open white sand. You could look to the right, and there was another 150 yards of just open beach. And this family came and sat right down in front of us. I mean right in front of us and we had this beautiful view, and now we were looking at the backs of five people, and I began to grumble. Yeah, I did. I'm not proud of it. and I wouldn't tell you what I said, but I just could not believe what, can you believe these people? I wanted to move my chairs right in front of them. And it was at that point that Shelley says, you know what, Grandma Wilder, that was her grandmother, Gladys Wilder, she said, you know what Grandma Wilder would say? She'd say, God put them there so that we could pray for them. You know, that's a beautiful thing. I want to be a beautiful person like that i want god to sweeten my temperament and my attitude i want to look at things constructively and positively i want to see myself in the position of a first responder that can rush into that situation and bring goodness and love and cheer light and life sometimes the path to doing that is slow and arduous because it takes trusting in the Lord and realizing God is at work in me. I want God at work in everybody else, but sometimes I'm, you know, I don't always want Him at work in me because that calls me to the responsibility of living for Him in ways that sometimes I'm not mindful of. But that's a beautiful story to me and I've never forgot it. I want to grow up to be a Gladys Wilder, not a sourpuss. You know, we do make those choices, but it's when we're mindful of God, aware of his presence, remembering who we are as citizens and now even as children. Wow, that's, that's a whole different temperament and disposition and we have all the genetics and heritage to be Christ-like. As citizens, he said in verse 27, live worthy of the gospel. Now he turns to us as children in our lineage and he says, shine as lights in a dark, crooked, twisted society in this dark and twisted generation. He says, shine forth as lights in the world. This morning at 5.55 a.m., I pulled into the nearby Starbucks. I wanted to get in line when it opened at 6. And so when I pulled into the parking lot, there was a, a SUV pulling out of a parking place, and then it stopped right in my way there and didn't have a blinker on, and I... I wasn't sure what was going on, and so I pulled around the car and then was going to pull into the driveway, and I realized there was a sandwich board there that said, um, not yet. (laughs) And then they came out at 6, and I realized that the guy that I had gone around was waiting to pull in there, and I felt like a real heel. I mean, a real heel. And then when I was waiting for the order, I thought maybe I should get out of the car and walk back there and apologize. I, I, I didn't realize that he was wanting to turn in there. I thought, I don't know what I thought, but and then I thought I should have bought him and paid for his order to send him a message. But you see, even though it was innocent what I did, I had no idea he was interested in getting in line. I was blameworthy. And we can make those kind of dumb decisions sometimes. But I am just, you know, I'm glad that God is at work in my life, that he puts those ideas in my life, in my heart, in my mind, so that I can be thinking about new ways and preparing myself to respond to situations like that in a better way in a Christ-like way and that's very important even though I'm disappointed in myself I'm glad that I'm thinking about it correctly and thinking ahead that way show the life of our message in Jesus Christ the gospel the good news and In verses 16, the second part of that verse through 18, I think Paul is emphasizing here that he wants us to pick the joy of what really matters, to choose joy. But where do we find that joy? You know, life, I find, is a wager. In verse 21, Paul told us that he was wagering his life on Christ. He said, to live is Christ, to die is gain. In Galatians chapter 3.20, he said, I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And here in the end of verse 16, he says, I wager my life on you, Philippians. In other words, I'm willing to have my life poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice of your lives for Christ. And it caused me to think about the what we value in life. Paul says, I value other people. I'm willing to spend my life. I'm willing to wager my life on other people. And you know, I found in my wise old age that it really is the people in my life that are the greatest joy, the greatest treasure. I knew it up here in my mind that's what the gospel says. Jesus himself, the Lord says, I'm willing to give my son for you. You're worth my one and only son. That places a great value, not just on those who received Jesus Christ, but all of humanity. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I don't know that we always treat people or look upon people or talk about people or even value people, as God himself values people. I think we need to assess our value system. With fear and trembling, we need to work out our salvation, for God is at work in us, both to will and to work. Paul says to them, you're my boast. Where's your boast? I've lived a while. My boast hasn't always been in the Lord, and it certainly hasn't always been in people. But I've come to realize that the greatest investment in life is other people. In fact, Jesus said that when he told us in the Great Commission to make disciples of all nations. That's the investment that's worth it all. Sometimes you have to take that in faith, but your your faith will be rewarded with a realization of great joy in your life. Back in the uh, day when I was pastoring in San Francisco, I went through a period of time—I don't remember how long—I just remember I was uh, wrestling with great doubt and discouragement about the meaning of my life. What difference am I making? And then I read, read about Bill Kamen in the San Francisco Chronicle. And this is what the heading read, XGI dies, then takes on national debt. Ben Kamen had a dying wish. He wanted to gift his entire estate to the U.S. Treasury in order to pay down the national debt after a year following his death he was finally able to do that the family was fighting over his final wish and this this award it was the it was the largest the the newspaper reported it was the largest of its kind ever given to the U.S. Treasury as of that time. It was $271,956, almost $272,000. And so that was devoted to the national debt. Do you know how long it stalled the growth of the national debt? 45 seconds, 45 seconds, this last Thursday at 11 a.m., I went to the national debt clock, which is online, and I took a stopwatch, and as soon as it hit zero, not zero across the board, we have a national debt of over $24 trillion, but when it would hit a Start a, a turning point. I hit that stopwatch until it hit uh, as quickly as I could see it. Two hundred and seventy-one thousand, almost two hundred seventy-two thousand, and it came in at about four and a half seconds. Almost two hundred seventy-five thousand dollars slows the national debt for about four point five seconds. The sum of Bill Cayman's life, paid against the national debt, by today's debt, not even five seconds. Do you know how much a billion is? When I was a kid, we got the the book of knowledge. We couldn't afford Encyclopedia Britannica. And for a class assignment, I read what it had to say about a billion. And it told me that if you took a billion one-dollar bills, and laid them end to end, it would stretch around the equator, the fat part of the earth, three and a half times. That blows my mind. Do you know that if you ha- held in your hand and you had four inches of $1,000 bills, four inches, you would be a millionaire? Do you know how high that stack would be if it were a trillion? It would be 67 miles high. A millionaire, four inches. A trillion, 67 miles. You know, a low orbit of the, uh, of the space shuttle is only 145 miles up. 24 trillion. The space shuttle would be flying right through the low part of that stack. It's overwhelming, isn't it? You want to do something meaningful and lasting with your life? Money, things, all depreciate. Your life will never measure much for those things. But if you invest it in people, it'll be eternal. It'll be meaningful and lasting and you'll know joy. Great, great joy. And it will multiply. It will accrue and grow. Because at the heart of it is the seed of the gospel. So I want to encourage you as citizens and as his children, remember this day, this week, remember always the Lord is at work in you to do great things right where you're at, to be a first responder for Jesus Christ. God bless you. And as I like to say, uh, hey, we miss you. We love you.